Listener Production. Ten years ago, Carrie Bickmore travelled to New York to meet some of the families of people who were killed in the 9-11 attacks. In just a few days' time, the world will pause to commemorate the 20th anniversary and Carrie will be speaking to those same families once again. That Carrie Bickmore is a journalist with heart will come as no surprise to those listening. The beloved host of The Project and The Carrie and Tommy Show doesn't shy away from an emotional connection with the news stories she covers. I just can't get past the fact that that's a conversation for us, but that's Dolly's family's life. Carrie and I share a connection with brain cancer. I live with a recurrent brain tumour and Carrie lost her husband Greg to brain cancer in 2010. It was then that Carrie started her hugely successful charity, Carrie's Beanies for Brain Cancer, and has since raised $18 million for research. Every five hours, someone is diagnosed with brain cancer and eight out of 10 people who are diagnosed will die from brain cancer. Everyone thinks it's this rare form of cancer. It is not. The Weekend List is on its way where Tate McGregor and I recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, here is a very special conversation with Carrie Bickmore about one of the biggest news stories on the planet and covering news stories that matter. Carrie Bickmore, welcome to The Weekend Briefing. It is so lovely to have you here with us. We are chatting just after Victoria's got the news we're going to be in lockdown for a whole lot longer. How are you coping? You've got three kids at home. Do you know what? A few weeks ago I stopped looking at the daily numbers when I realised they weren't going down and then I've also been so immersed in this 9-11 project that I've been doing that I was delayed in under, like getting the news that lockdown had been extended, which for me as a news person who's always on it the second it's been announced and I'm watching it through Twitter, is a very weird experience. People were telling me, you know, we're in lockdown for longer and do you know that? But the, the highlight in all of it, to be honest, because I assumed we'd be in lockdown a lot longer anyway, was that playgrounds have reopened. So small wins. It was a gift. I know people say this, but it's genuinely true. I have work. It's keeping my mind active. I have family, so I'm not alone in the house. It's a lot at the moment because, you know, we're all wearing different hats of teacher and activity organiser and parent and chef and everything else. And I think the project that we're about to talk about now is just a a reminder. Um, I've got constant perspective and I know I am lucky and I just am focusing on that. Yeah. So before we get to your project, tell me, about how, as someone who is so immersed in the news through your radio show, through the project and through other projects you're working on, how do you protect yourself from the news? Because some of the work that you do is not easy to report on and it's not easy to think about. And yet at the same time, you seem like someone who gives a lot of emotion to the news you report. Yeah, I mean, I probably don't do a great job of protecting myself. I mean, I think you see through the emotion that I tend to express too often in some people's books that I'm not good at separating how I feel about a story from just reporting on the facts of a story. But the way my working week is, is that the back end of my week, when I get to the weekend and I'm with the kids, I do try and take myself out of the news cycle. And to be honest, the logistics of having a two-year-old, a six-year-old and a 
nearly 14-year-old means there's not a lot of time for sitting in the news all weekend. I do definitely need those islands of being different in family life and talking to friends before I reset for the week ahead because, yeah, it's exhausting. It is exhausting, especially when the news is just continually devastating. We've clickbaited everyone long enough, I think. Tell me about the project that you're working on at the moment. It's hard to believe, but it's 20 years since the September 11 attacks happened. Incredibly timely, weirdly, given everything, the horrific images we're seeing out of Afghanistan at the moment. And I think everyone has their story of where they were when the September 11 attacks happened. Yeah, I was on year 10 camp and I remember we had a bunch of teenagers had sneaked into the teacher's lounge in the camp because we wanted to watch TV. We were being naughty. We watched the second tower come down. Wow. And one of the kids said, I think we should wake up the teachers. But you're right, everyone has a story. It's like one of those those moments in history that everyone pauses and remembers where they were. Where were you? I just started as a newsreader on 92.9 in Perth, a FM radio station over there, and I was up late watching it with my boyfriend and then from there sort of raced in. To be honest, when I first saw it, like most of us, I had no idea of what I was actually watching and I couldn't quite comprehend it. But once we knew it wasn't a movie and it was real life, I raced into work and then spent just day and night really for the next few weeks reporting on it. And I I think even back then, it was the first major news story I had to cover as a journalist and it was a big one for to be early into journalism, trying to process what you were watching and then retell it for people to, to update them and let them know what was going on when I, don't, I didn't understand it myself. Like I just didn't understand what and what it would mean for the next 20 years. But I have to say, even back then, even through the devastating images that just kept rolling and rolling and rolling, it was just wall to wall, the politics of it, all of that, even in all of that, Back then, it was the stories that I gravitated to. It was the people that I gravitated to. And I, 10 years ago, as we were approaching the 10th anniversary, I still had them in my mind. And so I travelled to New York and met sort of 10 families of 9-11 that had been impacted all in various ways that day. It was the most heartbreaking yet equally inspiring trip talking to those families that then 10 years on as we approached this anniversary, I just kept thinking about them and I was just really intrigued as to know how they were going because I think a news event like that, the world moves on from. We all know the world moves on from. You you talk about it again as an anniversary approaches, you know, but for these people, they live and breathe it and have extreme physical and mental challenges as a result of that day that's shaped their entire life. It's crossing generations. Some of them are only dealing now, 20 years on, only dealing with the grief that they experienced 20 years ago. So I met them all again across Zoom. It was so lovely to see them all again. I was a little scared, particularly with one family, that things may not have been going well for them as a family. And so I was very relieved to see both of their their beautiful faces when they popped up on the Zoom. But, um, yeah, it's been an incredible couple of months talking to them again and that's the special that we're bringing on Channel 10 on Tuesday night at 7.30. It's their journey over the last two decades really. Can you tell me about maybe one or two of the people that you met 10 years ago and that you've met again more recently? I don't want to give away the whole special for Tuesday night. I met a firefighter who was due to be on shift that morning and swapped shifts because his wife called him to say that she was pregnant and that was the only reason he wasn't down at, at ground zero. But he then spent 
months and months and months because he arrived back down there just moments after the second tower had collapsed. And he spent months in the toxic dust cleaning up and helping to find his mates that had been lost down there and who had died down there. But as a result of that, as so many firefighters experienced, he's got major, major health issues, sarcoidosis, lung disease, and that meant that five years after 9-11, at just 29, he retired. And we really explore the idea of being lucky to have survived because, yes, he was lucky to have survived that day, but what does that survival look like for him? It applies to another story as well where we speak to, I spoke to a man 10 years ago, he and a work colleague carried a woman in a wheelchair down 68 flights of stairs, a stranger that they hadn't met, um, and then escaped just before the towers collapsed. And last time I spoke to a man and his story stayed with me for months after interviewing him because he was struggling so much. You think of him, he survived, he was a hero, he was on Oprah, the president spoke, Bush spoke about him at the time, these heroes, but yet he was this reluctant hero who was struggling so much with the atrocity, what he witnessed that day. And 10 years on, we now speak to the other colleague who was um, on that journey down those stairs with him and how he's going. And it's fascinating watching two people that went through the exact same experience that day and their lives have taken a completely different path. And I think it just shows you how in any kind of tragedy and particularly with grief, it is such a personal journey. I think their stories for many of them they're really inspiring and you're like, wow, but you also look at them and you think, gosh, what is the cost of survival mentally and physically? So, yeah, so it's been, yeah, it's been a, a, a full-on journey meeting these families. Their stories are just incredible. Both you and I have experienced personal tragedy in our lives. Does it help you be a better journalist with these stories? Because sometimes I worry that I get too emotionally invested <laughs> in the people I talk to. But at the same time, I'd rather be emotionally invested than not. Yes, I get way too emotionally invested from the point of view that I actually care about these people and I care about their grief, their journey of grief, because I'm, you know, I understand that journey of grief. But I think it's an interesting thing too, because when you're talking to people and you know they're talking about something painful, you're aware of how hard it is to talk about something painful yourself. So it's it's a very interesting role as a journalist, but you can also put yourself in their shoes. It was actually really interesting because one of the families we spoke to, I met a guy who set up the 9-11 Tribute Museum. That he set that up 10 years ago and he's a beautiful man. He's a retired firefighter and he lost his son who's a firefighter. And the way he speaks about the day, he's just so eloquent. And so passionate and so emotional and powerful. But he admitted to us that he finds it hard to talk to his own family about it. So he finds it easier to do an interview about it than talk to his own family about it. And then this time around, we interviewed the son of the firefighter who passed away. He was only three at the time. He doesn't remember any of it. He doesn't remember his dad. He's now 23. And I said to him, Do you talk to your grandfather about it? Do you guys talk about it? And he was, No, we don't really talk about it as a family. And only 20 years on now, they start having a conversation about something that impacted their family so hugely. But when I've been talking to friends and family about that, they were like, but don't you find that's the way within so many families that sometimes the pain is so deep, it's easier to talk to someone you don't know about some of that than it is to talk to those that you love the dearest, you know? Yeah, I think about 
difficult periods of my own life. I, you know, the, even like days coming home from hospital after brain surgeries and having these conversations with my parents and my husband and my parents-in-law that was so meaningless <laughs> and frivolous and silly because we just wanted it was too much to talk about the heaviness of what was going on so close to it. And it was almost like we ignored, you know, the big gaping wound in my head so we could talk about what was on TV or, you know, gossip about one of the neighbours, talk about this silly stuff. Why do you think it is that we, I don't know if you're the same, why we, that we take salvation in that almost the unnecessary rather than talking about the most fundamental things in our lives? Yeah, when you're living through it, the pain is so real and raw that you don't need to have a conversation with somebody to feel it. It's there. It sits there with you 24-7. So any moment for possible respite from that feeling. But I also think there is something about, and I don't know whether it's it would have been the case for you, but dealing with your own pain is one thing. Seeing the people you love in pain is another thing. And I wonder whether the idea of coming home from that surgery and Telling your mum exactly how you think and feel about what's the, the fear you have and all of that also is going to scare her and upset her so much you then have to watch your mum in that state, which is not something anyone wants to see or do. So it's almost a protection of them by talking about something light and happy. It's almost like you're protecting them from having to be hurt or feel that pain that you're feeling. Did you always want to be a journalist? Did you want to be a journalist when you were a kid? Yeah, <laughs> I had a careers advisor come to our school I think I was in year 10 and they were trying to help us pick our subjects and help decide what we're going to do at uni and she said oh what do you like doing and I said I like dancing and I like talking (laughs) and she said "Um, (laughs) well you're never going to be a successful dancer which was brutal thanks mate yeah she hadn't seen me dance I was like mate you have not seen my pirouette but um she must have known because I never would have made a successful dancer but she said oh why don't you become a journalist and my dad had worked in media my whole life he worked in radio stations from the day I was born and so I'd spent a lot of my childhood under his desk sitting outside news booths and outside you know where the jocks were doing their their afternoon or morning um, shift and so I'd always loved radio like loved it yeah and in that moment in talking to her I thought oh, that makes sense I love when I'm in that space so yeah it just started from there and I just went left school and went to uni and studied journalism and yeah got into radio So tell me about starting at the project because we all think about the project now as this huge established juggernaut, right? But we forget that you were there from the start and no show <laughs> is successful on day one. That's not that's not how it goes and it's not slick and it's not perfected and no one knows what they're doing. Tell us about those early episodes and what they felt like. Um, I don't remember anything really specifically about any of the episodes we did when the project started. I can tell you specifically, though, the fear and anxiety that was inside me every time we went on air. The topics are a blur. Even how we put together it was a blur. But all I remember was being aware that there was a lot of pressure on making this work. I weirdly think the fact that I was so young and hadn't been in the industry for a very long time, I'd been in radio for 10 years and I'd been on Rove for 
I think about five, four or five years at the time, but very much protected from ratings and all of that. I just popped in and did my bit with Rove and had the best time and, and went home. I wasn't sort of in the day-to-day of that. I don't actually think I probably realised how much was at stake when I first started the project, which I think was a blessing because I just went in there, did my job. I was still doing breakfast radio when I started, oh. getting up at 4am, doing that, coming home. Ollie was only like one at the time, came home, had a couple of hours left, sleep then went back into the project and we just had a lot of meetings and then we'd get off air and we'd have a lot of debriefing about the show that just went to air and all the bad things about it and then we'd get up the next day and we'd do the whole thing again and I think the fact that it was daily helped because we didn't have a lot of time you didn't have a week in between eps to really overanalyze it was like you'd overanalyze that night well we're back doing it again the next day but the team that we were with I think it was just a this team that went okay we're going to do this and and you know, Craig, the EP, believed it, he was going to make this thing a success. And, yeah, and I think it's so weird thinking about it then because it's a completely different show now. Not only was it half an hour back then, but it just was a different format. It's evolved so much, which is good because I think everything needs an evolution. It was a pretty terrifying time. <laughs> One of the other things that's evolved on the show is the co-hosts. You've been the constant. And I was trying to imagine it the other day. I was trying to imagine being becoming a new co-host of the project and sort of starting like it's your first day of school but you have to do your first day of school on live TV. What do you do as the kid who's the buddy who's already been at the school to make that person feel comfortable? Like how do you make a show work for the first time when you've never worked with those people before? Well, usually in most of the scenarios we have met, I've worked with the people in a different chair on that desk. So they may have been, we call it the fourth chair, but You've been in the fourth fourth chair before, Jan, but, you know, that, that person that comes on regularly, part of the project family, I don't think there's been anyone that sat in that chair. Some people fill in for nights here and there when, we, when, you know, we've needed it, but no one that sat in there a long time that I didn't have a relationship with. And it's really interesting, actually. Waleed first came to sit on that desk when we did our 10th special on the 9-11 stories because he came on to speak about the impact of 9-11 on Muslims in Australia and Muslims the world over. And he came off the back of the story we did on Talat that I was telling you about earlier, whose son was um, wrongly labelled as a terrorist, and we spoke about it and he was amazing. And then after that he started coming on as a fourth and then years later he became the host. So it is interesting. I do have a philosophy that if we're all in it together, then I win. You know, it's not, there's no point me just worrying about myself on that show because the show won't sing unless everybody's singing, you know. So for me, it's just about holding hands with that person really and going, how can I help? I'll carry this bit if you, you know, you can't do, you know, don't know how to do that bit and vice versa. And there's been lots of times where they've carried me. So it's a two-way street. <laughs> yeah, I feel very fortunate the people I've sat next to on that desk and they're still great friends today. Charlie's a good friend, Husey, you know, they're still people I speak to, you know, often. You started doing that show when you were still doing breakfast radio. You're now doing afternoon radio and then pulling off an evening television show. There would be a lot of people in the industry listening, wondering how on earth you actually pull that off. How, how does it work? How do you actually get everything done? Well, fortunately, I do radio from the project. So that is a, an important step. I'm not spending time driving between places. So, um, And it weirdly works beautiful. It's not without its challenges, but in terms of content, 
both shows I need to be across the news and what's happening in the world and um, from the fun light-hearted entertainment stuff to people's stories that are in the news to the news what's happening with corona you know the latest and I already am across all that for one job so it transfers quite easily into the second job plus I work with Tommy regularly on the project and so working with him on radio it's it's all just very seamless even though it seems like it's a mammoth task and it isn't without its logistical you know moments where it's like ah um but I think the project allowing us to have the radio studio in at the project was is a game changer and it's made it all possible and I love it and I the thing about radio is I left it for a while and I missed it I missed it so 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 much and the thing about the show with Tommy is when we came back to do it it was just an hour in the afternoon we were just doing it really as a little outlet to have fun and for it to have grown now and to be, you know, the full drive show, it was great because it gave us the chance to find our feet, get to know each other. We knew each other as colleagues, but we didn't know each other super well. We actually joke because Tommy says, you know, when we started working together, I was one of his good friends. But it, at the same time in an interview, I said, you know, I sort of know him. <laughs> <laughs> but over time now, you know, he's one of my best friends now. And and um, But, it, again, it was just great to have the chance to almost start a bit off Broadway and practice but be on air and and it's now grown yeah to be the drive show and and I just love it yeah and I but I I'm, I do realize how fortunate I am to be able to do both the jobs that I do. So on Tuesday night we're going to see this 20th anniversary special about 9-11 where are you going to be in 10 years are you going to be reporting on the 30th anniversary? That's a good question. I asked all the people I spoke to that jam um, and I'm hoping that I can talk to them in another 10 years. Some of them are only beginning their journey now of healing. So I'm hopefully next time I can see them in person in New York would be really lovely. (laughs) But for me personally, I have no idea. I've never been someone that plans that far ahead ever. I think I learned from a young age, even from it being a small child, that life was constantly going to throw things your way that meant, you know, your plans deviated and and challenges presented. So I think I've always been someone that didn't want to plan too far ahead in case plans change. So I certainly don't just live in the moment like some mantra at all. I'm terrible at it. But I just plan for a year or so ahead, not 10. (laughs) Carrie, thanks so much for being on the weekend briefing and we're looking forward to Tuesday night. Thanks, Jam. I hope you guys get something out of it. I think you will. You can catch the special 20th anniversary show about the 9-11 attacks on Channel 10 on Tuesday evening. Coming up next is The Weekend List with Tate McGregor. So don't go away. Welcome to The Weekend List and welcome to Tate McGregor. Tate, the lockdowns are wearing on in New South Wales, Victoria and the ACT. I'm very jealous of our free friends across the rest of the country. What on earth can we do this weekend? I have got a watch recommendation that feels very on theme for this episode. It's called The Newsroom. It's an HBO drama series on binge and it depicts momentous days in a New York newsroom called the Atlantis Cable News. So not only do you follow these like fictional lives of producers, bookers, the anchors. You also get to learn about these big days that happened in the past. So you'll learn in the first season, you see 
9-11, the assassination of Osama bin Laden, the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. And it's written by Aaron Sorkin, who wrote The Social Network, Moneyball, West Wing, Molly's Game. So you just know it's going to be good. So you can catch that one on Binge, the newsroom. Good evening. From New York City, I'm Will McAvoy. ACN is now able to report and confirm that for the first time in almost three decades, the world has no reason to fear Osama bin Laden. I loved the newsroom when it first came out. So I am going to stick on theme today, Tate, given we've been talking to Carrie Bickmore about making news and covering big events. I want to recommend something closer to home, and that is the new ABC drama, The Newsreader, which is currently dropping an episode every Sunday night. It is again, a historical show about a fictional program called The News at Six, which broadcasts news every night. And it focuses on their two hosts, in particular, anchor Helen Norville, who is played by Anna Torv. And again, it captures all of these key moments in Australian history, the Challenger disaster, Lindy Chamberlain's release from jail and the Russell Street bombing, just to name a few. So it's looking with an Australian lens, I suppose, on what you've just been talking about. Lindy Chamberlain, they say she could be released from prison. I'll make sure that I am the first person that Lindy Chamberlain sees when she walks free. And it is made by Michael Lucas, who is, of course, the genius behind Offspring as well. Highly recommend this one. And I feel like you could watch these two recommendations as a pair. What else have you got for me to do this weekend, Tate? Well, as you mentioned, Jam, a lot of us are in lockdown and I got around to downloading Headspace through this lockdown to listen to on my walks or sometimes I find it like hard to sleep at night. They have really good wind downs at the end of the day. It's like guided meditations. And if you're someone like me who has a really busy mind, I struggle with yoga. I struggle with sitting still. Sometimes I find it makes me more anxious. Well, the Headspace is the antidote for that. Because someone's in my ear the whole time kind of talking me through it, it's a lot easier to stay regimented. So if you're someone who's dabbling in mindfulness and wants to start on that journey, I highly recommend Headspace. It is a paid app, but you can get a couple areas in there for free. So give it a try. Download Headspace. I'm going to add my endorsement to the Headspace app. I think it is incredible. And something else that will also assist with your Headspace, Tate, is the Blender Beetroot Brownie from... ABC News Breakfast's food correspondent, Alice Zaslavsky. This is this oozy, gluten-free deliciousness that is kind of draws inspiration from those orange and almond cakes where they make you boil the whole orange before you cook it. So peel and all, it goes in the mix. That goes into the mix with so much chocolate, like an unreasonable amount of chocolate, as well as a bunch of boiled beetroot. The deliciousness of a brownie and a cake that also kind of tastes like chocolate jaffers. It is so perfect. You will eat all of it. I even ate some for breakfast this morning. Oh, Jem, that sounds like an instant serotonin boost. (laughs) Oh my goodness. It's a really good way to help out your mood. Perhaps not anything else, but it'll definitely help out your mood. That's all we've got time for on the weekend briefing today. Thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to join us again, and we invite you to do just that, then you can find us in the listener app or wherever you get your podcasts. Please leave a rating and a review while you're there. It helps other people find the briefing. We will be back Monday morning, bright and early with the latest headlines straight to your headphones with the whole team. Listener.